Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times, and Art Doroche of The Athletic. A hugely significant night for football, featuring far-reaching protest in Paris. But business as usual for Manchester United. Flawed selection, tactical incoherence, weak goalkeeping, chaotic defending, and attacks thrown together in desperation when it was all too late. United are out of the Champions League and out of excuses. Surely, Johnny, something's got to give, hasn't it? It does, Mike, but it feels like something's had to give at Manchester United for, for several years now. The tension will be on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, of course. And I've been a defender of Ole, but it has he has to be under scrutiny now. I, I'm not going to pretend otherwise to go out of that Champions League group having, you know, won beating Paris Saint-Germain and then won 5-0 against Leipzig after those two games. It's like it's like that England test match in Australia where they scored 550 in the first innings and managed to, to get beaten. It's extraordinary to lose from that position. And then you look at the league form and although you know the table says that they're doing okay, in reality, the performances have been really patchy. I saw United play brilliantly against Everton, but I've also seen them be dismal against Crystal Palace. The last two victories with the result of, of you know, salvage jobs after the disastrous first half. So my stance with Ollie has always been that I think there's been a lot of glib criticism of him, a lot of over-the-top criticism with people willfully ignoring the achievements he's, he's had. But he's got to keep United progressing until this season he was progressing them. It's been a regression this last few weeks since the season started. And I guess the question now will be, can he do? Can he arrest this decline? Can he restore some sort of direction? But to go back to your remark, Mike, about something having to give, I do think that if they if they make a decision to relieve Solskjaer of his duties, it won't solve even half the problems at that football club, and that's what's really got to give, you know, a solution to the systemic problems Manchester United have had really for the last six or seven years. Yeah, I suppose when you can look at it. You know, it's, it's easy to come down Solskjaer and I don't actually agree with Phil Neville when he says that, you know, the manager's victim of a witch hunt. 
However, Art, is this all a sign of a team and a club which have got fundamental issues which are basically being ignored because of almost corporate expedience? I think in a sense, yes, but you've also got to look at the footballing aspects of the of everything that's happening at the club right now. And I think what everyone can see right now watching Manchester United over the past three months or so is that they just, when people say they've been inconsistent, I want to use that lightly because there has been a consistency in them having to claw back from losing positions. We saw that, we've seen that throughout the season and I think that's not the consistency any manager would want and Oligon Solskjaer has been trying to find the solution. But in that, I think you do have to stick to one kind of way and try and make that work rather than constantly switching, which will only cause more confusion, I feel. And that also stems from the problems that come above him because when you're appointing David Moyes, letting him go after not even a year, then you try Louis van Gaal. He wins an FA Cup, but he's out the door and you get in Jose Mourinho. He wins the Europa League, the Carabao Cup as well. And then things get a bit rocky with him. You relieve him of his duties and then you bring in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I, I don't think just letting managers walk out the door as soon as they hit a rocky patch is going to solve the issues. And it's a problem that isn't just lying at the footstep of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, but the players and the management above him too. Let's look at those in authority, Johnny, if we could. I look around and I wonder who actually has the football credibility to make far-reaching decisions on the management. Now, you've worked with Sir Alex. What do you think he'll be making of this? Because I know he's taken a discernible step backwards out of the limelight, but is there any influence there still? I'm afraid not. I think he'll be hugely frustrated and probably feels quite impotent because he has been, you know, it might be kind to say that they've they've made him take a step back. I think I think he's been edged out of the picture in reality by Edward Wood and the Glazers, and and he's left of this sort of ceremonial role. And you know, Solskjaer is a is a protege of his, of course. Maybe they're not quite as close as as you know it's portrayed sometimes, but he'll he'll be he'll be really disappointed. What 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 will what will upset him? I think is. The, the unpicking of the identity that he created, the lack of identity seen with Manchester United now at all levels. Solskjaer had, you know, he had a, he had a plan up to a point. I think we could see <clears throat> where it was going. And if you try and think of it about an alternative ownership of Manchester United, you know, Solskjaer gets to this summer. He's, he's got them back in the Champions League. He's found a bit of a formula with with, with Greenwood and, and Rashford, with with Fernandez. You know, it's starting to look like Manchester United. And he wanted Jude Bellingham. He wanted Sancho, you know, the year before he wanted Haaland. Now, Manchester United might be a very, might be a very different team if he'd been able to get, that, get those players. And I'm not saying that that justifies the shambles of last night or justifies, you know, means that Solskjaer's off the hook. But I'm, it's a chaotically run club where those transfers were doable for Manchester United. But because of the corporate structure the, the the weird habit they've got of 
penny pinching up to a point and then on the last day of a transfer window then just blowing everything and you know Art will probably recognise that from Arsene Wenger's final days it was a bit like that with Arsenal but it's that weird handling of business that lack of planning and, and it has undermined Solskjaer you know the Pogba situation undermines Solskjaer the Van der Beek situation undermines Solskjaer the fact he's got so many poor defenders they, they can't get off the books stops them bringing in better defenders to improve the team so you know when we and, and then you've got this this kind of culture at the club that's gone rotten because of a club that's been focused on making money and and getting clicks rather than winning football matches and that does infect things so there's all that in the picture You've got a manager that's stopped, I think, progressing the football club and, and, and yes, should be looked at. You've got players that could be changed, but you've got this bigger picture and it might be boring for fans to hear because they want a quick answer. They want sack the guy, bring in Pochettino, everything will be fine. I don't think it would be fine if they did that. I'd fear for Pochettino because Jose Mourinho is not a bad manager, is he? And, and, and it, it swallowed him up. It keeps swallowing people up and that's Manchester United's problem. Yeah, lest we forget the Glazers and their associates are going to be picking up an eleven million pound dividend in a couple of weeks. I want to go on to Pogba and and also his his agent Raiola. Art, you know, we we're no strangers to the manipulative ways of super agents, but I thought there was a complete lack of respect to the football club, which I thought was revealing in essentially touting Pogba around yet again. From Solskjaer's point of view, though, when he actually brought him on against Leipzig, he did improve them, didn't he? Yeah, I think when you when you watch the game, it was a left-footed pass from, I think he was just outside his own box over the top to Greenwood, which won them the penalty. And then when you, when you see that, it's, I, I'm, I don't want to compare it to his pass in the World Cup final, but it is very kind of like he can change a game very quickly by himself. He has the qualities to do that. And I I think seeing him every day, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is going to know that and want to bring the best out of him. And he's not going to want to try and force him out straight away, even with what Raiola has said, which is very, it's put him in a very difficult spot mm. <laughs> a few weeks before the January transfer window. But then even you see later on in the game where he's basically the one that got them the goal even though there was a little bit of involvement from Harry <laughs> Maguire, but it's him at the back post again, making the difference. And I think no one can question his ability. It's just having to do that on a consistent basis, which he hasn't done since his return to Manchester United. And I think where his agent is making those remarks in public as well, I think that's the main thing is that it's in public. If it's behind closed doors, then it may be easier for Solskjaer to manage in in the fact that he he knows where he stands and he'll know where Pogba and his agent stand. But now that everyone's everyone's got an opinion on it, it just makes it that much more difficult to to manage. And I feel from Pogba's point of view, he just has to play football. And if it is for a move away from Manchester United him playing well will help his case. If it's to stay at Manchester United, him playing well would help his case as well. So either way you look at it, I think last night was a win for Paul Pogba, even though Manchester United lost. Yeah, there are some far-reaching decisions to be made for the City game 
on at the weekend, aren't they, Johnny? Obviously, Pogba will feature in the in the speculation in the build up to that. What about the goalkeeping situation? David De Gea struck me as being fundamentally weak last night. What do you think? Oh, I agree. I, th- I think De Gea has been clearly way past his best form for a season, a season and a half. There's probably a deeper problem with De Gea that even when he was playing really well, was he the right goalkeeper for Manchester United? Because he's a he's a goalkeeper that wants to stay on his line the entire game. He doesn't push he doesn't push a team up. So you know been in situations where they've they've lacked that sort of sweeper keeper where where they've been trying to attack, trying to have a high line, but they've got a goalkeeper that stands back all the time. So even a top De Gea may not be the right goalkeeper for Manchester United. But it it was it was weak, semi committed last night. Dean Henderson is in the wings and probably deserves his chance. I don't want to continue to be totally doom and gloom about United. I actually have questions as to whether Henderson's a top-class goalkeeper as well, but he does deserve (laughs) an opportunity to show us he's certainly got the confidence to be a Manchester United goalkeeper. And yes, I would put him in against Manchester City because you have to treat goalkeeping you know, you have to be fair and, and play the guy on form and that is not David De Gea at the moment. Yeah. Well, I suppose clubs have to start forming an orderly queue outside the door marked crisis clubs, don't they, at the moment? Ah, your club, Arsenal, are they still suffering, a little bit like Manchester United, from the the Wenger era? You know, we all see the way the United took time and several managers to move on from Fergie. Do the same systemic issues remain at the club? I think it's not as high profile as Manchester United, but there are instances of that when you see the squad that Mikel Arteta inherited. It's, okay, well, actually not just the squad that he's inherited, but the squad he has now. It's players from the Arsene Wenger era, players from the Unai Emery era, and now players he's brought in himself, such as Cedric, Pablo Mari, Thomas Partey, Willian. And that mix, you're not going to have players that are all in his vision, I don't feel, even even if he is able to convince them to to all sing of his hymn sheet, I don't feel that they're all going to be stylistically his type of player. And we're, we've seen that in how he had to switch to a back three at the back end of last season to find that solidarity at the back, but sacrifice the creativity going forward. And now after the most recent international break with Arsenal, moving back to the back four, they just... <laughs> The, they don't have any of that creativity anymore when when they try to go forward and it's a real issue. So I think the, the problem isn't just, oh, is it a Wenger kind of hangover, I guess I'll call it, but it is Mikel Arteta finding his own way and the way that actually works because he did find a way in a sense with the back three towards the back end of last season, but that isn't the way that he initially wanted to play football at Arsenal and it's not the way that fans have wanted him to play football at Arsenal in recent weeks either. You talk about fans there are, you know, there is pressure from, I think, what is a pretty notably hysterical fan base. I'm you know, I'm talking about you know, Arsenal fan TV, for instance, which you know, frankly is just a circus. When you look at that and you listen to it, is that part of the problem? In a sense... It can be sometimes, depending on who who is actually viewing that. If it's players, then confidence can get affected, which is a real problem. 
But in terms of a management sense, I don't think it'd be too much of a, of a problem for Mikel Arteta because the way that Arsenal have gone about his appointment and what's happened since then, it's been very Project Mikel in a way, in the sense that he was given a longer contract than Unai Emery got when he first got a job. Unai Emery was given two years with an option of a third. Mikel Arteta was given three and a half years straight away. And I think since then, we've seen him promoted to from head coach to manager. We've seen a lot of structural change in the club where Raul Senlehi, for instance, is now not at the club anymore. But Mikel Arteta is now hidden up recruitment with the technical director, Edu. And I feel the direction the club is going in is very much in, is very much geared to help Mikel Arteta succeed rather than do what Manchester United have been doing for the past seven years in getting in high profile manager and letting him go when things get rocky. I think Arsenal were even reluctant to relieve Unai Emery of his duties and I think they don't want to be viewed as a sacking club and they're, they're going to try their best to make this work if they can. Let's look at the strategic decisions being made, Johnny, specifically Aubameyang. Big contract. Didn't they learn anything from the Ozil situation? And with hindsight, do you think they should have cut what would have been substantial losses and got rid of him in the summer? No, not at all. I, I don't have any any real worries about Aubameyang. I think he's a different character, first of all, to Ozil. I think he's 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 very much shown he's a team player in in any way Ozil might not be, and and I, I and you can see him suffering on the pitch. He's not he's not going through these games in this bad scoreless run he's in lightly. You know he he clearly has got the the, the desire to do well. I I just think he's a, he's a top player and he's having a bad run and and he will come good. The team's got to help him from my point of view. I think if there's a problem that's affecting him is how slow Arsenal's football's become, the lack of creativity and, and their inability to move the ball quickly into the forward areas, which is, you know, when, when as Art mentioned, the, the back three, and, and it was one of the reasons it was working well creatively was they developed this great way of getting, sucking teams forward, drawing them on and then getting out really quickly and releasing Aubameyang quickly. He needs he needs the game played at speed. He needs the ball in front of him. He needs to be coming on to it and, and he needs speed in the passing to, to make that happen. And Arsenal have just got so bogged down that by the time he gets the ball, he's, he's often just sort of standing, waiting for it in the box. And that's not his, that's not his game. I think Lacazette moving in the number 10 might eventually help him because he's, he's shown good signs there that he might be able to, to find those passes. But then... You know, Arsenal are a bit lopsided at the moment because Pepe hasn't been the player that they hoped he'd be. This, they need a solution on the other side. So I think this. I think I think I just put Aubameyang's problems down to Arsenal's problems, and I would trust in his ability and his character in a way that you might not do, let's say, with Ozil. Yeah. What about a broader look at them tactically? Are ineffective at set pieces, poor chance creation. Over reliance on on someone like Thomas Partey. I think the set pieces one is very interesting. <laughs> I've written a couple pieces in recent months about their free kicks, their corners. I think there's been, in terms of corners anyway, there's been like a clear plan in terms of they have a few set routines. One which uh, people are seeing most frequently is when they kind of try to box the keeper in 
and go to either the near post or the far post. But that hasn't been working on a consistent basis anyway, because more often than not, the delivery from these set pieces is just not good enough, whether it's Willian or Reese Nelson or Nicola Pepe. There's often times where they don't get the ball past the first man. And when when you lose those margins, you're going to pay for it because as Jamie Carragher pointed out on Monday Night Football, Chelsea are excelling in, in that area. And it's a key reason why they're so high up in the table. In a broader sense, tactically, I think what really helped Mikel Arteta as well when he switched to that back three was players like Bukayo Saka and Ainsley Maitland-Niles who almost played as floaters on the pitch. They're, they're not wing-backs at heart, but they've got the qualities that can help the side there where they often push into more central areas, create overloads, and then are able to push the ball forward quickly. I don't think Arsenal have had that without them. And that's been an area where they've suffered a lot since moving to a back four where Granite Shaka is often the person who drops in to like a into the back line and has to create as a quarterback from there where he's not as effective as he was before this season. And I feel it's just getting that movement from the defensive third to the middle third to the final third, getting that to be a lot smoother is the issue. Johnny mentioned Lacazette as a 10. And I think that is something that could work. I also <laughs> wrote about that last week after he played there against Mould and Rapid Vienna. And he linked play quite nicely with Reese Nelson and Eddie Nketiah and Nicola Pepe in those games. But he's not the typical number 10 who has the physical attributes to properly thrive there. He has the technical attributes, but Arsenal are going to need someone with both to thrive well in that situation I don't want to anoint you as our goalkeeping expert uh, Johnny but <laughs> uh, you, you know if the goalkeeping hat fits wear it or cap fits wear it um, in hindsight did Arsenal sell the wrong goalkeeper oh I've thought that no I I, I like Leno I, I, in fact I, I, I saw him years ago in the Bundesliga and, and was tweeting oh my goodness how what, why hasn't anyone signed this guy he'd be amazing in the Premier League and I got all these German football fans going coming back and listing mistakes he'd made against you know I don't know Hoffenheim and Dortmund and all that kind of stuff and saying you actually need to watch this guy he's, 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 he's got ricks in him and he was you know, he wasn't great in the in the in the North London derby. He's a good presence though, and he's 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 you know I was talking about De Gea's inability to command his box and push people out. I mean, Leno can do that, and he can distribute the ball. And and if Arsenal want to, you know, speed up the attacking game and probably play the football, we imagine. I mean, we we all kind of assume that Arteta wants to play Guardiola football. I mean, that is a big assumption. We haven't seen it yet, but we assume that he does. And you need a goalkeeper like Leno for that. So I think he's he's a bit of a poor man's version of an Edison or whatever. But you know, he's he, he he's okay. He's okay. I wouldn't start. I wouldn't start my issues with him. I would I would sort of maybe get around to looking at that situation after sorting quite a few other things out. So I could sort of give him a lukewarm six out of ten or something. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, um, you know your your uh, your name shines in the Thursday night lights, doesn't it? So uh, Europa League, you know, you're following Arsenal in that. They got Dundalk away on Thursday. 
Is the Europa League a possible safety valve for Arteta and the season as a whole? It was last season. It was for Unai Emery the season before, and it is now for the simple reason that it can get him back into the Champions League. Even though he got knocked out at the first hurdle against Olympiacos last season, the main kind of focus for Arteta was to go and win the Europa League. And I think we've seen that again with how he's approached the group stage this year with the strength of the teams that he's been picking. A lot of people would have expected him to rotate a lot more and blood in a lot more youngsters, such as Emil Smith-Rowe, Miguel Aziz, Flo Balogun. But he's chosen to go with more experienced players, such as Nicola Pepe, Alexandre Lacazette, and then also the more mature young players, I'd say, in Joe Willock, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, Eddie Nketiah, where they've already got decent amount of first-team experience. I feel the way Arteta looks at it, it's a competition he'll be more than happy to win, because of the prize at the end of because of the gold at the end of the tunnel, if he can do that in the smoothest way possible, I think he he he'd bite your hand off for that right now. Yeah. What about Spurs, Johnny? They they strike me as I think the way they approached the the Europa League. Okay, they had a whinge about it, but they got on with it. That told me that Mourinho had almost established his control there. You've got the Europa League on Thursday again. Is it another chance for people like Vinicius to to start against Royal Antwerp and to basically give the lie to the fact that we wonder about Tottenham's depth? Yeah, I I think Tottenham has crept up on us, actually, but they've got a really decent squad now, which you've got to take your hat off to Mourinho, the way he, he, he used the summer transfer so well to build strength and depth everywhere but yeah I, I i think when you when you really look at it now they have got good alternatives in most positions it helps that that, that you know harry kane's now sort of changing his game a little bit and they're, they're it's allowing you know them to be maybe less reliant on him for goals so we're not looking at them as that in that one-dimensional sense but yeah you've got people like lucas moura you've got lamella vinicius is, is as good a, a, a backup to kane as they've ever had you know lacelso playing at the weekend because um, Ndombele was injured but Lacelso was essentially a backup player another you know really decent option someone like Davinson Sanchez they, they 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 have now got not just good backups but an ethos as you mentioned Mike that, that, that Mourinho has chosen to take the Europe League reasonably seriously and they've got an ethos now of of of, of every game counting you know that's part of the winning mentality I think Mourinho's been trying to instill in them and of players clearly wanting to get on the pitch and show what they can do. And we haven't mentioned the probably the best backup player in Europe in Gareth Bale. I mean, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's a chance for him to, to come and show what he can do. They just look like they're enjoying everything at the moment, even the Europa League. And I'm into every, every Tottenham game is interesting. Now, every Arsenal game is interesting for slightly different reasons, but every Tottenham game is, is interesting precisely because of that strength and depth. You think you're going to see good performances and you're going to see uh, a team really going at it, even on a Thursday night. You've got, obviously, one of the trials of modern management uh, is keeping players happy in, in overstocked squads. Now, that brings us on to Chelsea. You know, some talk about Callum... Hudson-Odoi may be leaving in January. Has there been renewed interest from Bayern, perhaps? 
Giroud would be a first choice at most other clubs. Do you expect in January to see a few departures? Personally, no. I think we've seen with both of these players, they've had these episodes before, especially Hudson-Odoi with Bayern and Olivier Giroud last January with Tottenham and Inter Milan specifically. And I think Frank Lampard's going to know he's going to need these players as the season goes on if he wants to go into the latter stages of the Champions League FA Cup and also continue to challenge for a top four spot in the Premier League. With Giroud, I feel he's he's a striker. I, I, I loved when he was at Arsenal. I know that wasn't a popular opinion at the time, but his movement has always been a strength. That movement from in to out, out to the near post has always been there. I remember a goal he scored against Tottenham in the North London derby in September 2013, where he's at the near post. It was either Walker or Rosicki that played the short the short ball across the near post and he was there to tap it in. And that was a goal he scored, type of goal he scored very consistently for Arsenal, as well as having that strength in the air, which of course he showed in the last round of the Champions League to be especially good with his goal at the death to win away at Wren. And I feel... For Chelsea, he's going to be a striker where Tammy Abraham can learn off, Timo Werner can learn off, and having him there is going to be invaluable to Frank Lampard for as long as he can. With the Euros coming in this summer as well, that may lead people to believe that he needs a move, but when he's Chelsea's most complete striker, uh, I don't think he, he necessarily needs to be moving anywhere and he can prove himself under... Frank Lampard, who has proven last year and has proven this year that he does trust him. Yeah. I'd just like to, if I could, Johnny, also now broaden the discussion. I mentioned in the intro about unprecedented scenes in Paris last night. Collective action in players from both sides walking off because of allegations of racial abuse by a fourth official. That has obviously still to take its course. Nothing's proven as we speak but if it is proven what action will or should UEFA take do you feel well this is a this is a crossroads for UEFA because they have to they have to put their action where their mouth is I suppose they love their banners they love their adverts and we've always been a bit suspicious about the true intentions the true motivations when it comes to combating discrimination racism because of the the pathetic penalties they they actually hand out to offenders and because of the the priorities they seem to have when they 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 you know think that commercial things are more important and i have to say the way it was handled the way the incident was handled last night was spoke to me of that uefa contradiction you know they they their solution was to remove this fourth official and put him in the var truck you know, as if the sanctity of VAR was more important than protecting the players from from or and, and, and participants of the game from from discrimination. And you know, they should have just carried on, get, get you know, done without VAR, done gone an official down and, and just carried on the game. But that seemed to be their twisted priorities. I think I think I think I think we, we have moved on in in the understanding or discussion of racism around football and and we have moved past the idea that racial abuse 
can own or race ra racism is only a problem when it's abuse when it's a word voiced with you know bad intent by somebody towards another person racism's a machinery as well and 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 the the the, the this incident was an official we think allegedly you know defining someone by their color rather than as an individual which is maybe maybe we have to understand you know that we understand that now as 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 discrimination and as and as part of racism which is in it which is a which is an advance but uefa have got to back that up now by taking action and that doesn't necessarily mean hanging this romanian guy out to dry i don't i don't understand what that you know that might not necessarily do any any good either but certainly making it clear what the issue is here and i would suggest you know, not, not, not. I think this official was about is about to retire anyway, but I, I think he he should maybe speed up that retirement. And being as strong and as clear on this as they suggest that they're always going to be when they make those adverts, but then never follow through with action, because again, it was the players of the the participants in the game had to lead the action. You know, thank goodness for Dembaba, thank goodness for Kylian Mbappe, and and the 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 officials that. Basic. Oh, now I can't say the name. The Turkish side's <laughs> staff, who I, who I admired. But do you know what I mean? Again, we're in a situation where it's the players and the coaches having to lead action, and not the officials and not the authorities. And and that's the change that we need to come out of this. Yeah. What struck me last night, Art, was was I watching football's Tommy Smith moment? You know, we we all know about the the power salutes on, on the Olympic podium. And as Johnny was talking about there, UEFA, in essence, abrogated their responsibility and, and let the players decide whether or not the, the game was going to go ahead. It's it's obviously going to be restarted on Wednesday evening. You you know players, you, you especially younger players, are they at the point now where they want to reflect their disgust and there is much more chance of the sort of collective action that we saw last night. Will players start walking off? I think there is more chance of that, but I'm not sure if that would happen in England in terms of in a league match. I'm not sure if English players would be as confident to do it as, say, Denver Bar was in leading last night's protest, I guess we'll call it as he has experienced it before and he's taken a stance before, to take his words as well, I think when the authorities are looking at it, when it's a black player that might take a stand, they won't take it as seriously as if as when a white player would do it. And I think somebody brought up the example of if Cesar Aspilicueta walked off, would it be more powerful when he... And Denver Bar said it would be, not because it's Cesar Aspilicueta, but because it's a white player taking a stand with someone of a different race. Where, whereas if it was to be black players taking that stance, well, we've seen, <laughs> we've seen they've been taking that stance for months now, and the results haven't really been changing that much. So, where the sincerity might come is when it is a stance that's taken by more people in a more serious tone. In terms of just younger players, I think when they see players such as Denver Bar acting the way they did last night and speaking out for themselves, they will 
probably feel more empowered to do so themselves, but it also comes to a personal decision whether they would want to do that. I'm not going to sit here and say every single black player must walk off the pitch because in the end, it's a personal decision. And we saw how QPR, for instance, I'm sure we're going to talk about them. We've seen how they've kind of adjusted their approach with in light of what happened on the weekend. And it all comes in different different forms but I think the stances are more powerful when they come in unison with each other that's right but about the walking off but it shouldn't come to players having to walk off and the fact that it does is the failure of the authorities it's like it's like being racially abused in your workplace and having to leave that workplace because your employer isn't handling it and that's what walking off of a football pitch the players don't want to walk off they don't want it they don't want to not play the game of football they've come to play and the, that is a powerful thing to have to do but the fact players are having to do it and having to contemplate it shows where we are with the authorities yeah on that point johnny matt hughes in the daily mail this morning was talking about the fa and other governing bodies they're facing racial diversity targets in boardrooms from next year I would, you know, I'd applaud that. Am I confident that it would happen? Probably not. Are we seeing in the sort of through the prism of racism, football's lack of leadership exposed? Yes, very much so. Because it does take leadership as a word. It takes it takes deafness. It takes intelligence. And it takes authority to to tackle problems of this sort, and 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 that's lacking. And too often, let's say the the governing bodies in, 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 in England just look like they're desperate to, to make statements that will go down well with the public, that will play well in terms of the optics, to use that terrible word. But I don't see, I don't detect, I don't always detect sincerity behind them. And the diversity targets are a, are a big test for the FA because they have to enact them. And we've already seen them flex the kind of... That, you know the th- things when it comes to uh, when it comes to appointing, let's say the next England coach, or the next technical director. Suddenly, there's a sort of flexing of the the principles that they've laid down, and 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 well, you know, maybe maybe we we don't quite have to do what we said we were going to do in terms of you know interviewing black candidates or whatever. They come up with reasons, so we'll see. They certainly, they, you know, they, they having having made such play from the the new diversity targets, they now have to do something with them. But you know, we're seeing lack of leadership throughout the throughout throughout the authorities in England at, at a lot of levels, and and this is a test for them. Yeah, it was interesting talking to someone who was involved in the meetings before the Millwall match against Queens Park Rangers. It was interesting that there was some criticism of the way that the FA and also the EFL conducted themselves. And that was balanced by huge praise for the kick it out delegation and also from the PFA. On that art, you know, you mentioned there, Queen's Park Rangers score, a couple of players take a knee, raise a fist. Marlon Romeo, who I thought has been outstanding, showed outstanding moral courage over this weekend. He was applauded off at the end. What is the fallout, do you think, from the events at the Den over the last few days? It's a strange one to answer. I think in terms of just looking at the situation for what it is, a lot of people kind of understand now what the problem is in a maybe a more real sense. 
in the fact that as as Johnny mentioned earlier, it's not just calling someone a name that is going to be deemed as racism, but not actually supporting the cause to fight against racism is just as bad in a in a sense of principle because if you can't understand that and you frame it as something that is I've seen people calling it a political movement over the last few days when if standing against racism is political then I'm I'm not sure what is but if there is that lack of understanding how do you get people to understand and I think it's not by putting them in a classroom and showing them a bunch of slides it's by players taking actions like these because you can talk about oh people need more diversity training and stuff like that. If you bring the fourth official example from last night, you could say, oh yeah, we're going to find him find him, and give him more training, in internal training. <laughs> and he might, he might, with that training, he might understand he can't say certain words, but it may just be, okay, I won't say that now because if I do, I'll get in trouble. Whereas if you see the actual ramifications of your actions, you're not going to do them, not just because you don't want to get in trouble, but because you may feel the consequences of what those actions are to other people. So for instance, Demba Bar last night, putting pressure on the fourth official, he's going to feel the anger of Demba Bar a lot more than he is going to, if he was to just read it off a slide in, in a, in four walls. So I think that's where not just the mere wall example, I know I may have gone off on a little bit of a tangent when answering this, but the Millwall and PSG games this in the past few days, that's probably where people have, I don't want to say uh, awoke, but where people may be a bit more understanding to, to what the issue actually is. And it's not a quick fix, by the way. Mike, Mike, may, may, may I just ask... You know, you, you, with your knowledge of Millwall, and it's a club I I struggle to understand sometimes. But how do you how do how do you feel about this week and how how you know the the events have sort of played out and how the clubs handled it? I think the the club were hugely relieved at the reaction last night. I just thought you know they have been facing an existential crisis. And if I'm completely honest, I you know I spoke to some senior figures over the weekend, and my view was that they should have closed the ground last night. That obviously didn't happen. Balancing that, I can't conceive that you've got 1,300, 1,400, however many people booed on Saturday, racists within one ground. I just can't. I can't conceive that. I can. I can see that. People are maybe reflecting a very confused and a very divided society, and there is a racial element within the Millwall support. What I've I found, uh, you know, I thought it was a step forward of sorts last night, and I am really encouraged that the club. I've, I've always actually had a very good relationship with Kick It Out. I think Kick It Out, as an organisation, requires much more strategic support from the authorities. It doesn't probably get it, and that's you know when when I look at the money that's being siphoned through, let's say the PFA, I I, f- I find it inconceivable 
that kick it out don't get the, the sort of funding that they need to do the job that they have to do. It's This is a long-term process, but also you have social issues with which to deal. And frankly, that's generational. I, 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 and also, what, you've got, what you have to understand about Millwall as a football club, I feel, it's very complex. And there, there is a pride. Now, some would say it was a warped pride, but there is a pride in their difference and their ability or their habitual, almost effortless ability to cause some people offence. Now, I, though, go back to the sort of people I spoke to over the weekend who were desperately, desperately depressed. They were devastated by what had gone on because they saw the damage created to an institution that they feel actually does a lot of social good. So it was a really difficult evening. I think probably they got away with it, but I think there's an awful lot more work to do. And in that, you know, I, I, I think also we have to look at the broader picture. It's, this is not just one club. And I think we have to look at the picture of, of, of the way that football addresses its responsibilities. I still think it is backward. It's feudal in many ways. And I suppose speaking of which, and we'll go on to another big picture issue here, it's the 25th anniversary of Jean-Marc Bosman winning Freedom of Contract. There's a BT Sport documentary being aired on Wednesday night. I think it's going to be repeated at the weekend, which highlights the personal cost. I suppose i better give a quick history lesson before we, we stop, or start rather. Bosman had played for Liège for two years. They offered him a new contract, which represented a 75% pay cut. They put him on the market for half a, a million euro. He was suspended for a season, which was legal at that time in Belgium, because they couldn't agree a deal with Dunkirk. Now, it took five years, but um, the European Court of Justice ruled that he and any other player could move where they wished when out of contract. He was 31 and effectively finished as a footballer. He became depressed and drank. Now, Johnny, you met him at his parents' house, I believe. Impressions of him? Yeah, I mean, I'll be fascinated to watch this documentary because that, that trip stuck in my mind for, for years. It was about 1997, I think it was, 97 or maybe early 98. I was working for Scotland on Sunday at the time. I was a young journalist and Bosman had had already changed football and I got in touch with him through his lawyer, went over to Belgium, drove to his house in Liège to do an interview with him and he wasn't quite what I expected then, you know. He he, he wasn't uh, this sort of um, kind of political figure or freedom fighter at all. He was he was a quite a forlorn character sitting in. You know, I, I remember this this kind of very average apartment in Liège being kind of dark and a slightly depressing place, and and him sitting there in an armchair in his in his parents' house. And telling me that he he felt football had forgotten him, and he was you at that point we were just starting to see the first Bosman transfers, and of course that 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 is what gave player wages a quantum leap because players were able to to you know claim get signing on fees or transfer fees as wages, and and all of a sudden and he was 
he was bitter then about the, the 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 number of players that were making a lot of money and 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 football was you know him that had fought for them had, had been forgotten about and he had been forgotten about and that was in 1997 I'm not surprised he's had problems really because you could you could tell then he was struggling with it and even that you know back then it felt this disgraceful that, that 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 this guy had been left to do all the, the the players' dirty work, the fighting, and then been 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 sort of ignored, forgotten about by the players' unions, by the the, the players' unions in Dem in in Belgium, but also FIFA Pro and so on. It must have been a big burden for him to deal with, and it did end his career. That's the thing. He he wasn't a fantastic player, but I think he was a he was an okay. I think he was a fullback maybe, and after. The, the the legal wrangle he never really played again so he started off as a guy just trying to to win the right to move clubs and and he ended up killing off his own career and then spending many years I think and we'll see in the documentary having to watch other players get rich on the on the back of of his sacrifice I suppose I felt sorry for him then and 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 as I say it'll be interesting to see how the how the last twenty odd years have unfolded but. Um, you know, he he's a forgotten hero, I think, for players. Yeah, as you said, he enriched thousands of players, probably. Given our disquiet with the way football is run, Johnny, did the establishment set out to punish him? Maybe unconsciously. I mean, he was a pariah. He was portrayed as a troublemaker and he was shunned, I, I, I guess, in his own country and by... In the international players' union didn't seem to do much for him. So yes, he was a guy that that you know football I think still has, and we were you know this is this speaks to what we were talking about. Football still has a kind of uh, conservative for the small c mentality where you don't speak out and you get on with the game and you just get on with things and you know and and, and that's what Bosman was a victim of of that because when you when you wind it all back he was. He was simply, you know, an employee who wanted the the right to to move to another company when the company he worked for didn't want them anymore. And and we forget that players did used to be shackled by these contracts where they they didn't have that freedom. We take it for granted now, but it wasn't for granted. You know, it wasn't 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 there. He had to he had to win it for people. But he certainly wasn't where he was different to what I expect. He wasn't a firebrand. He was a very normal guy who didn't set out to create this big change. He just set out on a point of principle for himself and and then the consequences unfolded from there. Mm. Oh, you know, as we've mentioned, you're close to an emerging generation of players. Do they know Bosman's story? And if not, should they? In terms of the story itself, I'm not sure they, they probably know it off by heart like they would other stories. I think they would know that they are in their right to to look for other clubs when their contracts are running down. And I think we've seen that a lot with especially young English talents in recent years where they run their contracts down and are able to move to to foreign clubs for quite small fees and then excel there before coming back here. And they should be allowed to do that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying it's something that happens. Whether they're aware of why they're able to do it, I'm not too sure. And I guess this is a way where they they may be able to educate themselves on what is behind these these decisions that they're making today where the the footwork was done 20 30 years ago yeah i suppose 
If you look at it objectively, Johnny, the morality of the transfer market has got worse since he made his stand. You know, the system's probably in need of some sort of overhaul. I don't think it's realistic to talk about a US-style draft system. But I suppose the question is, and it's a question which relates to a lot of what we've been speaking about, is that will football ever change until it's forced to do so? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, it's funny reflecting on the transfer system where, yeah, it's only really changed in that the, the power's gone to, to the players and the agents more in particular and where it was with the clubs, but there's still not a kind of restraint on, on how it operates and uh, there's perhaps no more loyalty or care from one party to the other than, than there was then. Uh, football is not really... <sighs> set up though for international regulation I guess you know to try and bring I mean Bosman initially just came in I think if I remember right for European players and then spread out to 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 the rest of the world but you know I yeah I would love to see some more kind of stable transfer system I don't know if it's a draft or, or whatever but but you know something that that is more transparent creates a bit spending restraint maybe as a social mission to it where there's a certain amount of money it sort of goes off as tax to to fund causes and 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 good and change for the good in the game i don't think it'll ever happen i'm afraid and i don't you know football won't change unless it's forced and as we've been speaking earlier there's there's not enough leadership to force real changes yeah well all too often in modern football money loses its meaning meza ozil's paid 350,000 pounds a week not to play a game most would pay for peanuts. Not entirely his fault, you'd say, and it doesn't reflect particularly well on anyone involved. Football excuses the greed of super agents and places a price on the head of a 10-year-old boy. That can't be right. It's wrong also that Jean-Marc Bosman has been punished for his moral courage. Football ruined his career, it airbrushed him out of history. The least he deserved was gratitude and understanding. Watch the film and I'm sure you'll join me in wishing him well. Football's got a lot to sort out. Thanks though to Johnny and Art for their insight and to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.